Welcome to the Blinkist Podcast. I'm your host, Ben. I'm talking into a microphone in Berlin, Germany. If you're new to the Blinkist Podcast, the idea is we're going deeper into the nonfiction book world. We're getting into the heads of the inspiring, the genius people who actually write those books. We are taking big ideas and making them personal. Today in the podcast, I have an interview with brand expert Denise Leon. She is the author of the books, What Great Brands Do, and the new ebook, Extraordinary Experiences, What Great Retail and Restaurant Brands Do. And for reasons that will soon become very clear to all of you out there, I found it really exciting and also necessary to speak to a brand expert. Hint, hint. Anyway, it's also good to talk to somebody who worked directly with brands, with big brands like Sony, Burger King, Land Rover, and more. Um, the book has lots of specific examples including Amazon, Zappos, REI, Patagonia, and much more. She also talks about brands she does not like, like Krispy Kreme and Radio Shack, which she gets into during the interview. So in the interview, keep an eye out for why she thinks brands have to start on the inside. And she shares her story of how that happened at Sony a couple of years ago. Also, uh, we tried something new where I asked her to bring something to read, and I brought something also. So we each shared couple paragraphs from our favorite branding books. Before we get into it, I just want to say if you like what you hear today, please do head over to the iTunes store, leave us a review. It'll be extremely nice of you and uh, it helps us get this podcast out to more people. All right, let's roll the tape. I'll catch you guys in the outro. Enjoy. Thanks so much for taking the time to come onto the Blinkist podcast. Thank you, Ben. So the people out there don't know, but I asked you to bring or to select a text from something that's not your book, like a nice paragraph or something. And I also brought something, I thought maybe we could do something different this time and we could start off with, I mean, tell me what you brought and, and give it a read and we'll, we'll see if what I got is, is similar or we'll see what mm -hmm. happens. Okay, well, I'm so excited to share this with you because it's from the, a book called Eating the Big Fish how challenger brands can compete against brand leaders. It was written by Adam Morgan back in 1999. So it's over 16 years old at this point, but it was probably one of the most illuminating books that I read back then. And I continue to refer to it uh, regularly today. So that's why I decided to uh, to select it as the source for my passage. So cool. I just picked um, like a few little pieces from the introduction because I think it kind of explains a little bit about what the book is about. So should I yeah, go, go and share? Okay. Yeah. All right. So this is Adam writing. Okay. And he's talking about how he tends to, at that time, he tended to work on brands that were not market leaders, but kind of like the underdogs. And so he was looking for sources for to help him figure out brand strategy for these companies. And he writes... The more I searched, the more the answer seemed to lie in what a colleague of mine gave the name of challenger brands, second-rank brands that had demonstrated growth in the face of a powerful and established brand leader. Then he goes on to say that the bulk of this book that he's written, again, it's called Eating the Big Fish, is given over to an analysis of certain strands, which I have called the eight credos of challenger brands. So the eight credos of challenger brands are 
Number one, break with your immediate past. Number two, build a lighthouse identity. Three, assume thought leadership of the category. Four, create symbols of reevaluation. Five, sacrifice. Six, overcommit. Seven, use advertising and publicity as a high leverage asset. And eight, become ideas centered rather than consumer centered. And he closes this introduction by saying that challengers seem to succeed not just through original marketing thinking and strategy, but by carrying through the strategy into challenger marketing behavior and the attitude, the driving sense both of opportunity and need that challengers establish for themselves right at the outside of their enterprise is what drives that completion. Nice one. So why did you pick that? You know, I think that there is has been so much written about market leaders. And, um, you know, I hear from many people who are like, well, you know, knowing how Apple is successful or knowing how Nike or Starbucks has gotten to be so successful is, is interesting and it's helpful. But certainly a lot of us are more of these underdog brands or, we, you know, we're not as resourced or we are new and we're trying to shake things up. And particularly, I think, in this market economy where there are these disruptor, disruptors and these kind of smaller emerging brands that seem to be, uh, you know, really disrupting their categories. You know, I think people are looking for how do you successfully challenge the market leader? And so um, the, the book concept, I think, has a lot of relevance even today. And then the specific credos or, you know, specific strategies that Adam outlines are, are, are just brilliant. And, you know, he pulls from lots of different case studies that show how these actually work. And it's just been inspiring and instructive to me as a brand builder to think about how do you create a brand that really will take down the, the category leader. So, um, I'm looking through my notes. It, is is that not in the chapter? I think you mentioned him in the chapter, Don't Chase Customers, right? Wow, Ben, you really read my book and remember. Oh, for sure. It. This is Woo! no this is this is no joke, man. This is this is for real this is real time podcast <laughs> action. Yeah. No, I'm very impressed. And yes. So I did reference him and yes, and um I, I believe in that chapter. In fact, it's been a long time since I read my own book. But um Yes, uh, you know, so clearly I'm still referring to him and, and this this seminal piece of work, you know, years later. Yeah, I mean, I think what's cool, I'm ch- like to connect that to your book, the the thing that I that really stood out to me, um, two things. One is this idea of commitment, which mm-hmm. is all over your book, right? I mean, mm-hmm. bra- the concept of brand as business, making the brand really a focus for the entire business, relies on serious commitment and not just yes. like doing a new logo or a new ad campaign or something, but, but seriously from day one, um, no matter how long it takes. Another mm-hmm. thing, and the other thing besides that commitment is this ideology thing, which is of course gets into the like mystical, weird, little swishy brandy stuff, <laughs> right? That you can't really put your hand on. Pixie dust, yes, right? <laughs> yes. So mm-hmm. how do you do that as a challenger brand? And I mean, I guess, can we focus on commitment and ideology? Sure, sure. So so the example, one of the examples that Adam uses in his, in his book on the chapter about commitment is Saturn. So um, the Saturn car company? Had, the car company, yes. Oh, man. Which is, 
Yeah. And we're, so now, we, like I said, we're going back way back to like the mid 90s, right? right? That's when I um, last had a Saturn, I think. <laughs> but you know, what Saturn did was, you know, they said we're going to be a different kind of car company. And so we're not only going to make a different kind of car, but we're going to make a whole different kind of car buying and owning experience. And so that I think they were one of the first, if not the first, to eliminate. Um, commissions for their salespeople in their dealerships. And, and I think that, you know, Adam's point was when you set out to do something different, you can't just do it in matters of degree. You really do need to go whole hog and really commit, you know, and despite all the pressures from, um, from, your corporate owners or your investors or the industry or the media or analysts or whatever, you need to just say, this is what we believe in and we're going to do it even though it doesn't make sense. You know, I always talk about how when you commit and stay committed to the core of your brand, you're going to do things that seem illogical, but that's what great brands do. And it also means being committed to an ideology, right? Um, I would really love to talk a little bit about the Jim Collins concept of core ideology. Mm -hmm. Well, and another book that I yeah I use a lot as well. So for sure, yeah, yeah. You know, I always say that great brands are idea led and consumer informed. And the reason why I put it that way is because I think that when you have to have some sort of idea or some sort of ideology, some belief that is driving you, some point of view about the world and how and the difference that you want to make in it. Um, because, you know, running a company and building a brand is certainly is not easy. And it takes a lot of sacrifice and a lot of investment. And if you don't strongly believe in your idea and if that idea is not clear and focused you're going to end up wasting a lot of your resources you're good or you're going to end up not standing for anything really um and i think what what great brands do though is that they are um they're so committed to the idea now that's not to say that you know, so some people are like, you know, customer first and customer driven and customer led. And mm -hmm. I think the, the concern or the danger of that is that customers can pull you in lots of directions that may make sense for them, but don't make sense for you as a company and as an organization and as a brand. And so I think that you need to be able to say, you know, we understand who we're trying to appeal to and what they want is very important to us, but we will always be first committed to our idea and then be informed by what we know about our customers. This is interesting because I guess the question they wrote down about this is, so what's the most common or difficult obstruction sort of to, to focus on the core of that brand, to focus okay. on this mm -hmm. idea? But even a step before that, we have to we have to talk about who's actually thinking about this. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. you're saying you have to, a company has to. Um, who's actually responsible for that? It's not the head of marketing. It's not CEO. It seems like it's everybody. Yes, although I do think that it needs to be driven by the top leadership of the company, and and doesn't necessarily have to be one person, but it needs to be the you know key people, uh, key leaders of the organization. And they, they're responsible for engaging and aligning and in inspiring and motivating everyone within the organization to, always, to also be committed to that ideology. But to answer your question, you know, what, what gets in the way, I think it really is um, kind of short-term-itis you know, yeah. um, you know, the pressure to produce short-term results and kind of the, I think the de 
desperation that a lot of business leaders feel when things are not going well for them. And, um, you know, certainly I think privately held organizations have more um, flexibility or leeway to, or they give their leaders or the leaders have more flexibility and leeway um, to, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily ignore the short term, but definitely be focused on the long term. But even, you know, publicly traded companies and, you know, my, my all time two, two examples that I always use all the time are Amazon and Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Both of them um, are publicly traded and, and um, you know, they're, they're, Investors, I think, are very active and, and engaged, but they're the leaders of the organization are willing to tell their leaders, hey, we're going to be focused on the long term, and the way you're going to measure our performance is over the long term, and so we're going to stay committed to our core ideology, and if you're not in it for the long term, then we're not the investment for you. Right, so, it, so it's almost like if the biggest obstruction is or difficulty is short-termism, the best solution is long-termism. Yes, and yeah, and I think leadership that is committed to that long-termism. Right, right. Okay, we're going to take a short break to hear what some people around Blinkist are up to. Hi, I'm Claire from the Blinkist Content Circle, and I just finished reading The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. I read the Blinks to it first, and it was really awesome, so I actually got the book and read it. And yeah, it's really cool. I, I very much recommend it and it is life-changing. I'm actually doing it and like going through with it. My name is Natalia. I'm a designer here at Blinkist. I'm currently reading Why Did the Chicken Cross the World by Andrew Lowler. These books illustrate how the chicken got domesticated and how, why is it so crucial to humans and yeah, the role that plays in our evolution and yeah human behaviors and everything and traditions okay welcome back i'm joined by denise leon um and now i think i should read what i brought yes okay so this is i was looking around the office um I was tempted to read from Tribes, the Seth Godin book, but then I was like, everybody's going to think that's what he's going to pick. So <laughs> I found I found a really interesting book that I read last year called The Brand Gap. Do you know this book? Oh, yes. I, um, Marty Neumeyer. Yeah. Yeah. And this also is- Also a great text. Yes. It's fun. And it's really cool for the people out there. It's like, um, he calls it a, a whiteboard overview because it's mm-hmm. there's a lot of like drawings and- um, there's only like 70 words on each page, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so basically I picked just when he introduces the brand gap and he says, strategy and creativity in most companies are separated by a mile wide chasm. On one side are the, strate- are the strategists and marketing people who favor left brain thinking, analytical, logical, linear, concrete, numerical, verbal. On the other side are the designers and creative people who favor right brain thinking, intuitive, emotional, spatial, visual, physical. Unfortunately, the left brain doesn't always know what the right brain is doing. Whenever there's a rift between strategy and creativity, between logic and magic, there's a brand gap. The gulf between strategy and creativity can divide a company from its customers so completely that no significant communication passes between them. For the customer, it can be like trying to listen to a state-of-the-art radio through incompatible speakers. The signal comes in strong, but the sounds are unintelligible. 
And then he, he talks about this, this psychic distance idea between customers and companies. And the mm -hmm. reason why I chose this to read is because I think my favorite part of, of uh, your book, What Great Brands Do, talks about internal brand building mm -hmm. and how and why that's important and how to actually do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the question to you is, how do you do that? How do you cover the brand gap? How do you get everyone aligned um, on brand ideals? Mm -hmm. Well, it starts by being sure that you have clear and focused brand ideals and that they are clearly articulated and, you know, uh, every, and at least the leadership team agrees and commits to them. Um, without that kind of foundation, again, you're kind of going to be all over the place. But once you do that, I think then and it is it is really a very um, concerted and it's not um, a program or initiative like, you know, we're going to do this brand engagement program for the next six months. It's really kind of a way of, of doing and being as an organization. But it's um, constantly engaging your people, um, informing them of what your brand ideals and what your brand purpose and your brand attributes and, and your brand positioning are, informing them and explaining the rationale so that you get it in their heads then there's this um, kind of motivation, igniting passion and getting people excited. And a lot of times that's really telling stories about the brand and about the company and about customers. And so you get people engaged with their hearts mm -hmm. and then you give them tools and, and instructions and guides and planning frameworks and layout processes or help them lay out processes that enable them to support and advance the brand in their daily decision making and behaviors. And so as an organization, and this probably would end up being something that maybe like your training and development or your organizational development group might spearhead, but really is kind of an overarching way of being for the organization that you're constantly engaging your employees and your key stakeholders with your brand. So let's let's get into the let's get into some like nitty-gritty Mm -hmm. Some specifics. I mean, there's a lot of examples in the book, but I would just put it to you. Like, what's your favorite example of a uh, of leadership clearly identifying these ideas? What mm -hmm. were those ideas, and then how did they exactly implement them into mm -hmm. the company? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, I'll talk about my experience at Sony Electronics since I, I, I know cool. it best because I, I lived it. And um, so w this was back in like the early 2000s when Sony was still very much the dominant consumer electronics brand. But even at that point, I think that the president and the chief marketing officer of the electronics company here in America kind of sensed that, you know, we can't take this brand advantage for granted. And so rather than, oh, we'll, you know, let's launch some sort of fancy brand campaign on on the outside, they decided what we really needed to do was focus on internal engagement and alignment. And so um, we did articulate the building blocks of the brand very specifically, because up until that point, no one had really bothered to write them down. Um, you know, it was kind of like it just this intuitive sense of what the Sony brand stood for. But, you know, we articulated our core belief as um, we create technologies that inspire people to dream and find joy. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the building blocks. And then we had like the Sony style attributes and the Sony identity. And, you know, so we had clearly articulated all this out. But once we had these building blocks together, 
then we engage all sorts of um, activities to get people to become familiar and to start using them. So, for example, like at the national sales meeting, mm-hmm. um, we did this um, kind of game show style quiz for all the salespeople about the role and the value and the and the um, building blocks of the Sony brand. And so, one of the um, attributes or, or elements of the Sony brand that we identified was this phrase we do what others don't. And it's actually a quote from Akio Morita, who started the company. Um, but anyway, so, you know, when when the salespeople started thinking about, well, what does we do what others don't have to do with me? They started thinking about, well, you know, when we go into Best Buy and we are selling our products to Best Buy, are we doing a kind of the standard sales presentation and are we kind of doing the standard kind of contract and and engagement with with our retailers or are we doing what others don't are Mm. we presenting our brand are we presenting our products are we presenting our offers or you know our deals to our retailers in a way that is truly unique and innovative and so kind of taking them through this process of thinking about it, they were able to think to reconceive their sales presentations. Mm-hmm. The last thing I'll point to is that we created a brand touchpoint wheel, which is a, uh, and again, it's in my book, um, it's a visual representation of all the different ways that someone from the outside world comes into contact with this, with the brand, the Sony brand, and then all the internal groups or internal departments and processes that affect those external touch points. And what was really helpful about putting that touch point wheel together is that only 40 out of maybe the 240 touch points that we identified were advertising and marketing related touch points. Hmm. And I think because everyone started to see, oh my gosh, what I do as, you know, the person in legal who's writing our warranty information, you know, that has an impact on the way people perceive our brand. Oh my gosh, you know, maybe I should really be thinking about this differently. You know, really open people eyes to how we are all in um, a part of shaping brand perceptions and delivering on the Sony brand. So those are just a few examples of the things that we did, but it was really, you know, this head, heart, hands and feet engagement with the brand that we undertook. So were you pleased with how that all went in the end? Um, I'll say a yes, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, yes, in the sense that I think for a time, a period of time after we initiated this, um, there were some really, I think, remarkable changes. Sony went from going to market on a very product category basis to a customer segment basis. And it really, I think, changed um, the way that we engage our customers and, and other, I think, pretty important shifts. But I will say that there was there's a lot of tone there was a lot of turnover at Sony at the time. And um, after a while, new leadership came in and uh, revitalizing and focusing on the Sony brand was no, no longer important to the new leadership. And so they started to deprioritize those efforts. And that's eventually why I ended up resigning and leaving the organization is because th- at some point, you know, what I believed was important for the organization to focus on was no longer what the leadership thought was mm-hmm. important. I mean, you ended up okay, it seems. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what what's your favorite mistake a brand ever made or or is there a brand that you really hate right now? Oh, wow. I'm trying to ask a negative question, but I don't know yeah, which one to choose. Yeah. Um, you can well, pick your, you can take your pick. Yeah, I think I, you know, I'll um pick on Radio Shack. 
Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> because, and I talk about this a lot in, 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 the, in the talks I give because, you know, Radio Shack um, used to be the place where it was like the cool place where you would go. Like I remember as a kid, I would go and like go to their stores and like fiddle with all their gadgets and its electronics. And it was kind of like this cool place. Yeah, for sure. And, and yeah, and you know, um, Isaac Asimov, the scientist and science fiction writer, was their spokesperson, and yeah. they had like over seven thousand stores. I mean, they were really like the king of the technology world, at least as we knew it back then. Mm-hmm. You know, and then fast forward to today, and they're bankrupt, and and I think that they've gone through like three different management changes in the last year with people trying to revive it. And it's just is, I think it's frustrating to me because I think what Radio Shack did was that they didn't, going back to our original conversation, they didn't commit hmm. to their core ideology. I mean, I think that, you know, they instead tried to imitate um, Best Buy or tried to compete with Amazon. And, you know, these were just small neighborhood stores that right. couldn't compete on that level. But rather than embracing who they were and the strength they had and kind of the, you know, kind of in-person, hands-on experience that they created in their stores. Instead of embracing that, I think they turned from it and as a result, completely lost their identity and therefore, you know, lost the business. Interesting. Yeah, I remember, I only remember good things about Radio Shack and then all of a sudden they were gone. Mm-hmm. I remember playing on the keyboards. It was like the one place <laughs> you could play all the keyboards. Yes! Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, th- that hands-on experience is still, I think, something that um, lots of retailers. I would think about the Apple Store now. That's why everyone likes going to Apple's because you can fiddle around with everything. And I think that yeah, um, Radio Shack just kind of um, lost their way. Cool. So um, I like that you tied it back up to commitment. But we're we're gonna run out of time. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the new book. Yes. So I published an ebook called Extraordinary Experiences What Great Retail and Restaurant Brands Do. And it's meant to be a companion to my first book, What Great Brands Do, in the sense that it builds on the seven brand building principles that I introduced, but really shows um, kind of on a case study basis how seven different brands implemented, or I should say how, yeah, seven different brands implemented each of the brand building principles. So for my first brand building principle, great brands start inside, I profile Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, a fast food chain here, and their remarkable turnaround based on how they use this principle of great brands start inside. And since everyone goes to stores and everyone eats at restaurants, I think it's a really good demonstration how of how these brand building principles work, you know, for any kind of business. Interesting. I wish I had been able to find our company's Kindle because I wasn't <laughs> able to read it this week, but um, we can talk about it next time we talk or something. <laughs> That's not, that would be awesome. I would love that, Ben. Cool. Well, listen, this was a lot of fun and, um, we will stay in touch. We'll look forward to to doing this again sometime. Thank you so much for the great conversation. Thanks for listening to the Blinkist Podcast. This episode was produced by me, Ben Schumann-Stoller, and Ben Jackson, who can do entire DJ sets controlling Ableton Live with his toes. Feel free to email me at podcast at Blinkist.com if there's someone you want to hear, or if you have any feedback about me or the interviews, the podcast, Blinkist Magazine, or want to share your own story. We'll be back in a few weeks with the next interview and a special episode. In the meantime, be good. This has been Checking Out. Bye-bye.